Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Chris Russia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. We were talking today about the Federal Information Security Management Act, the FISMA report to Congress, one of my favorite reports to Congress. Uh, if you look through it, there's so much good news in there, and there's so much progress that agencies are making. So that's where I kind of want to start. When you look through the FISMA report, when your folks put it together, what are some findings that really stood out to you? Were there any surprises? First of all, I completely agree. This is a crucial report. It really helps us understand the progress agencies are making across all the different capability areas. And I think the main takeaway that I've got from uh, last year's report is that it demonstrates agencies are continuing to make gradual progress and improvements across all areas, which is good news. And there's a lot of hard work behind that. When you ask about what might stand out, I, I think one big stat that jumped out to us was the 26% increase in the number of cloud services um, reported by agencies in, in FY 2019. And that, I'm sure continued throughout the response of the pandemic. I think it it shows just how rapid this acceleration of of cloud adoption efforts is and and then the need for us to ensure that we're having secure configurations for those environments, right? And and, and that is one of the areas of focus that that you see in the recent executive order 14028, where we've got various uh, initiatives and tasks on developing secure cloud strategy and reference architecture and the like. So you know, to me, to me, that was really kind of the biggest takeaway. Interesting that the number of attacks against agencies, you know, kind of saw or number of, of attempted attacks was up. The number of successful ones, uh, there's some more major ones that popped up as well. Do, do you look at that and say agencies are facing a different type of cyber attack today than they were a year, two, three years ago? Or is it just part of the ebb and flow and last year was just – because of the pandemic and other reasons, maybe we saw an increase that, that expected and, and maybe almost natural. We saw an 8% increase in the number of incidents, right? And that's that's significant. And I believe that in the prior two-year reports, you know, it actually decreased. And I, I think we got to be somewhat cautious around reading too much into the overall numbers. It, it also gets into, are we getting better at detecting, et cetera, and, you know, looking at it from both angles. But but look, I mean, I, I definitely feel that the, and, and we've observed over the past few months, that the scope and severity and scale of some of these attacks is quite dramatically up. And and that is really driving this sense of urgency and focus that we have to, to address that. You know, it, when you look at the overall number of incidents in the FISMA report, though, it is also important to point out that if you look at something like 97%, are really in that low category of either they hadn't been substantiated or were considered to be inconsequential events, maybe non-events, or just in a low level of severity. And there's really more around that 3% range of incidents that really need to be investigated and, and looked into and may have had some level of impact in that scale from a major all the way up to a major incident or, or something far less severe. So, yeah, you know, it is important when you look at a number like 31,000, to disaggregate that because, you know, there, there are big differences. When you look at the number of incidents, too, I think one of the things that is important to look at is where agencies are still struggling to deal with the, the incidents, right? And spear phishing, email attacks continue to be one of the, the biggest areas that the attacks are successful. Also, one of the big areas that, that I saw this year was around web authentication. And I think that's another 
part that the people are starting to pay more attention to. Are there specific steps you all are taking to really address those threat surface areas? I mean, I know obviously DMARC was a big one, but are there other things that are happening that you're saying, okay, we really need to turn up the the levels there? For sure. You know, if you if you look in the cyber executive order that was recently released, I mean, you can see a number of actions across the board. And it's really providing the roadmap that we, we've got to enhance how agencies are managing risk from all of these attack vectors. For sure, phishing is still uh, where we see a lot of success. You, you mentioned web, web off. I mean, there, there are some key areas that we're focused on, like laser beam. But we're also taking a higher order picture and looking at, you know, what, what do we need to do from ensuring that agencies have awareness on cyber incidents that are affecting their mission by uh, ensuring we're changing contract requirements, making sure that SIS is developing options to implement endpoint detection, response tools for agencies to discover threats, and ensuring that we're, we're focused on um, developing secure software and that agencies are procuring secure software. And, and then on the incident response and recovery end, developing playbooks, incident response playbooks, and, and best practices, and, and standing up for the first time an incident review board so we can take kind of the, the best lessons learned from these events and ensure them back to, to everyone. You know, and this is all about managing the holistic risk picture because we also learned in, in recent months that there are some sophisticated methods being employed here that may or may not be through the most common attack vectors, but there are things that we need to have layered defenses back and start developing um, zero trust architecture in, in a faster way across federal government to ensure that we're, you know, having the full modern security stack in place and really not trusting uh, on the edge and just ensuring that we are uh, continuing to assess the devices and, and the humans accessing data so so that we are really protecting from the, the TTPs that we're starting to see. Chris, you mentioned risk a couple of times. Let's go down that path because one of the things that highlighted to me, that I really is, is how agencies are doing a much better job of managing risk. And, and I think that is shown in the report when we look at the NISC cybersecurity framework function and the rating levels, highest ever across the board in, in the mall. And then when you look at some of the IG reports that talk about how they're managing risk, you see better efforts, you see better scores, if you will. What does this tell you about how agencies are handling cyber these days just from the, the way they're managing risk? I think Fortunately, it's it's starting to pervade out of IT cones and really get into the business side and mission side of agencies in understanding that cybersecurity is really about managing risk in the digital age. And that's a journey we're on. That's an educational process that we're on with agency executives, which is why it's so crucial for OMB to have cybersecurity baked into the president's management agenda cross-agency priority goals and other mechanisms we have to you know, drive and, and measure risk management of, across federal agencies. So I think that that's one key thing. And the other one is, look, CISOs and, and uh, their teams and, and the IT operations teams, uh, application development teams, they are working hard to address cybersecurity risk. And we spend a lot of time on the CISO council. There's a number of subcommittees in that group. And it's a real partnership to work together and address these risks that, that they are seeing and lifting up to the broader group so that we're sharing best practices across and providing help 
because you know rarely does one agency have a problem that another hasn't seen, and we're ensuring that those best practices and and just lessons learned are being shared, and and that we're pulling them up and making sure that they're not just shared point to point, but also you know formalizing it within the body to get that goodness out to all of the agencies. You bring up this idea of ensuring that non-IT folks, the CIO, the CISO, and their staffs understand the cyber risk that that's involved. Is there a specific approach you or, or your office is taking to meet with secretaries, deputy secretaries, assistant secretaries for management, you know, CFOs, whomever, that necessarily aren't the IT people to, to help ensure that they understand why managing cyber risk is more important than ever? I mean, you can say solar winds, but, but until it's something that's more personal to them, they may not get it. Absolutely. And, and that's right. It is about storytelling and it's about explaining the risks in business terms. And, and that is absolutely in our, our roadmap and plans. You know, deputy secretaries are starting to onboard across federal government, which is very exciting. And we are starting our engagements with them at senior levels within OMB. And it's absolutely in our roadmap here to, to really start having these business risk management conversations and frame cybersecurity as really digital risk management problems. It always amazes me because these folks are, you know, executives who come in from the private sector many times or have spent time in government, and and we still are are trying to make sure they understand (laughs) the importance of of cyber risk. Hey, Chris, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Chris DeRussia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Chris DeRussia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. I want to shift over to uh, something else that you mentioned uh, when we talked about the biggest attack vectors a little bit. And, and there's – you mentioned the word zero trust, and that's a big buzzword in industry. It's going across – every you know vendor wants to offer zero trust. Give me a sense of how the move towards zero trust is going to start to address some of these big attack vectors, again, web authentication, email spear phishing, and the like. It is a fair thing to say that you know zero trust has become a, a bit of a buzzword, but I also think that it is the appropriate organizing construct for really modernizing our approach to security. And so you talk about IT modernization and you talk about security modernization. I think that security modernization, zero trust go hand in glove. It's a it's a paradigm shift in how we think about securing our infrastructure, our networks, and our data. And it's getting to be more about you know, more data-centric approaches and really ensuring that um, you know, we're not just focused on perimeter security, that we are making uh, every device and every person re-authenticate into whatever they're trying to access and, and to continuously monitor that and ensure that we are, um, you know, that it is the appropriate device or, or person that is accessing the resource. And so until we kind of change the way that we work a little bit. And it is also going to, back to the other point, affect how people access resources and and do their work within IT shops, but also uh, just employees in organizations. And so it's really making it more about this cultural shift and journey that we've got to be on. So it's not just about the, the zero trust tools, which are across a whole series of capability sets and, and things that we've been working on for a while, but it's also that broader point of the cultural journey of, of changing how we work in IT cones and, and in security cones and then how we interact 
with the rest of uh, employees and organizations. Chris, I want us to take a bigger step back for a second and look at the FISMA report. What's the message you think agencies, vendors should take from this report itself? I mean, it's easy to to write reports, put it on the shelf and, and say, look, we, we met Congress's goals. But there's a, there's a bigger message, I think, coming from this report. What would it be for both agencies and vendors? The FISMA report does a really good job of showing where government's focused. It, it, it can tell you a lot about the priorities that we've got. It often signals a direction strategically for, for where we're trying to head and, and really gives you a sense of where agencies are, are doing well and then where they may still have some gap areas and could, you know, could use some support or will need continued investment. So I think that you know, for the whole security ecosystem, there's, there's quite a lot to be gleaned from the reports. And then we also try to put the data on incidents and uh, other things in a way that is digestible and can help understand the trends, the security trends and attack trends that we're seeing on federal networks is another useful takeaway from it. But, but in general, you know, it, it really does provide a helpful overview of the different policy priorities and things that we're, we're tracking for. Now, it's a little bit of a, a change year as we go in, in the transition. And I think you can anticipate to see even more of our policy direction uh, framed out in next year's business report as well. So they are, as you point out, really good uh, summaries, but also roadmaps for strategic direction for the administration. Chris, I, I see we're just about out of time. Before I let you go, and this is a great segue, I know your plate is full. You just got the cyber EO you mentioned a few times that are going to fill up your, your priority list over the next you know six, nine months or a year. In the short term, I guess, what should we look from your office between, let's say, now and the end of the fiscal year or now the end of the calendar year? What are some of the big goals or big priorities for you? Well, you, you named the first one. You know, one of my top priorities is definitely ensuring that we successfully implement this executive order and deliver high-quality products from all agencies that are, that are tasked with that. And there's, there's a lot. So the other thing is technology modernization fund. And, and we received a billion dollars for the first time in the American Rescue Plan, as I'm sure you're aware. This is about evolving our, our management model from kind of TMF 1.0 to a 2.0, because before we'd only had an annual appropriation of 25 million. And so to, to get the billion dollars changes a lot about what we need to do with, with program management and, and how the board reviews and ensures that we're getting high quality product uh, projects through. And, you know, our focus there is, is also heavily on security. It's, you know, it's also about you know, modernizing high priority systems, public facing services, scalable cross-government services. And the theme that really resonates throughout is ensuring that we're getting security outcomes from these investments as well as the TMF. And so that's a big opportunity in front of us that we're excited about. And, and another one that I would mention uh, before, before closing, Jason, is the, you know, really taking a look at FISMA. This is something that Congress w- really wants to do and we see a lot of value in it as well. You know, 2014 was the last time it was, it was updated. A lot of things have changed. And we're looking forward to, to that opportunity to really think through how we're assessing uh, performance of agencies and, and how we can potentially do some things differently to drive uh, progress based on the, the threats and the sense of urgency that we're feeling based on the moment. So I'm really looking forward to, to all of that work, a lot of great opportunity in it. And it's going to be a busy year. 
Uh, without a doubt, and we'll be hopefully have time to catch up again in the future. But for now, we'll have to say uh, thanks to your time. My guest has been uh, Chris DeRussia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Chris, a pleasure to catch up. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jason. It's been great. We have to take a break. When we come back, we'll shift gears and hear from the National Science Foundation about its program to accelerate technology innovation. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In the next two segments of the show, we hear from the National Science Foundation about its program to accelerate technology innovation. My guest is Doug Mon, the office head for the National Science Foundation's Convergence Accelerator. Doug, it's great to catch up with you again. It's the, probably the first time we've talked since you went over to NSF, so thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate the opportunity to catch up. So since you've moved over to NSF, uh, I know you've been working on this thing called the Convergence Accelerator. Let's just go start at the beginning. What is it? What, what are its goals? How does it work? So the Convergence Accelerator is new. It was started about two years ago. The idea is to be a consumer of the basic research funded in other parts of the foundation and even in the per- private sector, and to take that basic research and move it down the pipeline of innovation towards commercialization. We're trying to accelerate solutions towards uh, societal impact. Sounds so easy, right? Like, hey, we have such great research, just commercialize it. But uh, obviously, it's, it's not that straight. It's not, not as straightforward as that. So walk me through what, what does it mean? How does it work? What should people know about the Convergence Accelerator? So the Convergence Accelerator has a three activities. The first is an ideation phase where we invite the community to provide us ideas of national scale problems that they think we should be working on. Uh, We select the best ideas and then we fund workshops and those workshops become our solicitations. The community then responds to a solicitation and then we select uh, projects to fund. They go into phase one During phase one, the teams are in the accelerator for nine months, and it's up to $750,000. During that nine-month accelerator, they're involved in a curriculum that includes team science, human-centered design, customer discovery, pitching and and storytelling, and, and several other topics. They compete at the end of phase one and they're down selected for phase two and phase two is two years and $5 million. So all total, they're in the accelerator for a total of three years. And obviously because it's a down select, not everyone makes it to phase two. Uh, obviously not everyone makes it to phase one, but is, is there, is, do you guys have a limit then to the number of companies or number of projects that move into phase one and then how many move into phase two generally? It's certainly dependent upon our budget. Uh, the first, cohort, the 2019 cohort, we had 43 teams in phase one, and we down-selected to nine teams that are currently participating in phase two. And one of the reasons we're talking about this today is because you have another cohort for a new funding opportunity for 2021 and 2022. There's two research tracks. Just walk me through what the funding opportunity looks like uh, going forward. The announcement that came out is track E, is called the Networked Blue Economy. And the idea here is to serve as a platform for developing innovative and interconnected tools and techniques, and also the human engagement with ocean resources. 
So the projects will produce uh, tangible products or processes or resources that will allow um, the US and even more broadly, an opportunity to develop uh, solutions for a more sustainable engagement with the ocean. Our track F is called Trust and Authenticity in Communication Systems. And similar, this is aimed at developing a platform of uh, tools and techniques and education to help us uh, prevent, mitigate, and adapt to threats in our communication environment. And there's a, certainly an urgent need for such a platform to determine the verifiability of, of different types of data, as we've had several instances, even more most recently, fake communications associated with the COVID response. And so it's our belief that uh, this trust, uh, track F will provide new tools for trust and authenticity. Now, Doug, someone may be listening to this and go, okay, how's this different than, for instance, an SBIR program or some of the other R&D type programs? There's a lot of broad agency announcements that go out that deal with R&D. Is NSF, is this modeled after another one or is this NSF's own kind of thought process? Walk me through kind of all the sure. different pieces and parts that are out there already. So there are several differences in the convergence accelerator from existing programs. Uh, the first one that people will encounter is it requires a multidisciplinary team. This is the definition of the word convergence, which means multiple disciplines, multiple institutions, and multiple types of institutions. So our expectation for someone responding to our solicitation is that they put together a team that includes industry, nonprofits, government labs, and academia, but it, it isn't just a single discipline and it isn't just for a single institution or organization. So that's a, a very different model than most are uh, familiar with. Additionally, as I mentioned earlier, it's really taking basic research and moving it down the innovation pipeline towards commercialization. If you look at an SBIR, for example, SBIR is the, the business already exists. It's also a single company. In our case, because we have multiple institutions, that's also uh, very different. One of the other things that we talk about is sustainability. And that means by the time they finish the three years, they have uh, a sustainable solution. Uh, and that by sustainability, we mean they could actually create a startup. They could create a nonprofit. They could create a consortium. They could uh, do an open source project. They could uh, license the intellectual property. So the idea is there are multiple paths for sustainability uh, beyond the NSF funding. We have used this year a, a broad agency announcement, which is the first time uh, that NSF has done this. And our reason for doing so is to bring industry to the table to lead some of these projects. The first two years, we used a traditional NSF solicitation, which means it was led by an academic institution and they had industry and nonprofits and others on their team. But this year we released a broad agency announcement with the, the hope of getting more involvement from industry and having industry leading some of these teams. Thanks for that explanation. I think it's important because people hear another research project, another thing that the government is funding, which is not always a bad thing, but I think putting some 
definition or some some context around it's important. I want to go back to the the two kind of different tracks. Now, both of these came from, as you said earlier, uh, meetings and, and industry days and discussions with the community. Is, is were these like two of ten, two of twenty ideas that popped up, or walk me through how you decided on the you know network blue economy and the trust and uh, authenticity of communication systems? Yeah, so there were workshops hosted in 2020 community workshops, realizing, of course, because of the pandemic, they were all virtual, but we had 12 topics that we funded the workshops. And so these are the two winners out of the 12 total. They, of course, uh, we look not only at the topics themselves, but how do they fit into the administration's priorities? How do they fit into the National Science Foundation's priorities? And so both of these topics fit very nicely there in, in those different um, areas of the administration and the foundation. Each workshop generated a report that is public and available and is referenced within the solicitation and the BAA. And so uh, the community can go out and find those reports and look at uh, the full content. Obviously, our solicitation is only a few pages of uh, from those reports, but the reports are available for people to read and understand the bigger picture. Now, these other ones, the other 10 that didn't make it to the finals, do they come back around next year? Or again, it all depends on what the kind of the community is talking about. Maybe they go off and do R&D on their own and they don't need NSF for next year. Correct. And I mean, we will certainly look at this next year when we send out the request for ideas, which will happen in the August timeframe but we will also keep, or at least bring back to the table those 10 topics that were not selected last year. You mentioned the BAA, you mentioned the, the traditional grant solicitation. Just give me quickly the timing of it. What should people be looking out for? You have some deadlines coming up very soon. Yeah, so the um, solicitation is NSF 21-572. Um, they can find that on the NSF website. Uh, there's also a broad agency announcement. If you go to beta.sam.gov and search for NSF Convergence Accelerator, you'll find the latest broad agency announcement. Uh, potential submitters are required to submit what is called a letter of intent by May 5th. This is just to let NSF know that they are intending to submit a proposal this gives us an opportunity to know how many possible proposals we may receive, which allows us then to prepare the necessary panels to do an NSF uh, review. Let me, let me follow that up, Jason, with um, in addition to the letter of intent, then the full proposals are due June 14th. And then once that happens, we'll uh, review all of the proposals that we receive We'll make selections, and our intent is to kick off the cohort in September of this year. And we will link to both the BAA and the, and the grant solicitation on our website as well, just so people can uh, make it easy to find. How many awards do you get a sense you may make? Is, is it hard to say right now? Currently, um, we are planning to make roughly 30 awards. Uh, we have $22 million for phase one, and at $750,000, that's roughly 30 awards, uh, 15 for each topic. 
And then phase two, again, is that something that you know how many awards yet? or, or we, did... we don't, and it'll be very dependent on what gets funded in phase one and uh, what our budget is in uh, future years. All right. So obviously more, more on that to come as we go forward. Doug, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Doug Mon, the office head for the National Science Foundation's Convergence Accelerator. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Doug Mon, the office head for the National Science Foundation's Convergence Accelerator. One of the things about this effort is, as you mentioned, the BAA, that's a little different than previous years. Uh, as you've done this year in and year out, how has the Convergence Accelerator changed or improved or evolved? I like to remind people that we're still a startup inside NSF. Uh, we're two years old. But, uh, you know, we've made some changes, obviously, with the pandemic this past year. The first year, our innovation curriculum was completely in person. This past year, it was completely virtual. So we had to change the entire curriculum to uh, work in a, in a virtual world. Um, we have also um, changed the amount of funding we provide the teams. The first two years, we provided them a million dollars. And we've discovered that they were struggling to spend a million dollars in a year. So this year, we've uh, cut the phase one funding down to 750K. And um, we'll see how that works. I think one of the other things that we've discovered is, uh, as I mentioned, the reason we're doing the BAA was the sooner we can get industry involved, the sooner we believe we can have solutions that are that will be more usable and sustainable and so we're learning as we go that you know the in industry involvement is even more critical than maybe we thought but we have also discovered that the connections between academia and industry are not as plentiful as we hoped for so um, we're hoping to build those bridges between the academics and, and industry going forward did you get requests from industry over the last year saying, hey, why can't we participate or how can we participate? And is that why you added the BAA or did something else kind of push you towards saying, hey, we need to open up this to industry in a different way? It was two things. One is industry did come to us and saw the model, really liked the Convergence Accelerator model and wanted to participate. But uh, they also have a, it's a little bit, challenging for a for-profit company to respond to a traditional solicitation uh, with, that the academics use. And so they requested that. I will point out, however, that because of the model where the teams are required to have multiple institutions involved, we do have a lot of industry involvement um, because they're partners on, on the projects. But the BAA and the purpose of the BAA is really so that industry can more easily lead the projects. And, and so given my background in other government agencies, um, we decided to try a broad agency announcement this year uh, here at NSF. All right. Obviously you guys deserve some credit for trying something different going learning as you go. That's, that's always an important thing for programs like yours. So you don't uh, end up, I don't call it stale, but, but, you know, stuck in a rut, if you will, maybe, uh, even though you're only a couple of years old. want to talk a little bit about the, the previous cohort, the two, you said it's a two year old. 
give me an understanding of what's come from it so far. Help me understand, you're talking about real world impacts, the, the need to speed that up. Uh, help me understand, what, what have you seen from this Convergence Accelerator effort over the last couple of years? Sure, our first year, our inaugural year in 2019, the, the track A was called Open Knowledge Networks, which is really about data science. And track B was called the future of work, which is pretty self-explanatory. And it's looking at some of the, um, you know, how are we going to deal with things like artificial intelligence in the, in the workforce of the future? I will remind that these two tracks are still in phase two. So they're about eight months into phase two. So we don't have any shrink wrapped products yet that we can share with the community. I will, just highlight one project that I think shows what we're trying to do. In our future of work uh, track, we have a project that is led by Vanderbilt University looking at the neurodiversity workforce. And so if you think about the, and, and looking primarily at autistic workers. So there are 4 million American adults with autism and 80 to 90% of them are unemployed or underemployed. So the Vanderbilt team is looking at producing technologies that will help uh, autistic workers be better prepared for future jobs. They're also creating technologies to help employers be better positioned to hire autistic workers. So we look at this and, you know, if we could even be 25% successful, we could potentially impact the lives of a million Americans um, when you think about bringing the neurodiversity uh, workers into the job market. So that's the types of impact we're hoping to have. Our 2020 cohort was track C is on quantum technology and has 11 teams and track D is on AI driven innovation via data and model sharing and has 18 teams. Those 29 teams are still in the phase one um, curriculum, and they'll be um, uh, participating in the, they have to submit a pro uh, phase two proposal, and then they will participate in our uh, pitch review in the July timeframe, and we'll be down selecting from 29 to uh, eight or nine phase two awards for track C and D uh, to go forward in phase two. The neural diversity piece is really interesting. I know the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency put out a, a interesting blog post about a pilot program that they're working on very similar. Uh, is that related to this or just happened to be another interesting project that had a lot of people focused yeah, on? I, I think it's a very interesting. It's not related to this. We're not working with them, but certainly they could become aware of this. And, and I think the key thing that is that Vanderbilt has done is they've connected with job placement centers around the country to scale it up. And, and that's what really needs to happen is we're looking for solutions that scale, that can have a large impi impact nationwide, uh, not just in a single region. Again, a fascinating project. Uh, it's it's uh, be excited to see what comes from that as well. And, and all of these are, are, are fascinating. Doug, uh, one, one thing, just kind of step back for a second. When you run a program like this, and you, as I said, you and I talked when you were at DHS Science and Technology years ago, so you're used to these long-term programs. What should other agencies keep in mind? What should vendors keep in mind as you are running this program? What are some of those challenges or opportunities? And then 
how did the pandemic, if anything, did it throw any kind of wrench into the, you know, convergence accelerator effort? So I think for other agencies, we, we have connected with a lot of departments and agencies on our, on our, not only on track E and F, but on our prior projects. And the agencies can participate on these teams. They can, if there's a project they really like, they can help the teams. They can provide resources or, or data or, you know, whatever might be helpful for them. So it is opened to the other departments and agencies. They can come and participate with us and, and kind of track these projects as much as they want. That's perfectly acceptable to us. And, and if they have resources, they can provide. I think from the standpoint of the vendors, it's the same story. You know, I have had large companies ask, how can they participate? And what I do is I tell them they can participate by responding to our RFI. They can participate when we publish the winners of our um, selection process. They can ap approach those teams and try to help those teams. The teams have some flexibility. They can add team members throughout the project. So, so big industry, if they've got uh, ideas or solutions or data or you know resources, they can they can participate with these teams. So it's it's not only you know the teams that are funded by NSF. Their job is to expand their teams and bring in other people to help them create and deliver solutions. As far as the pandemic, probably the, you know, the two things that impacted us the most was one was going from a completely in-person curriculum to a completely virtual curriculum. That changed the dynamics a little bit because, you know, oftentimes doing um, things in person is a little bit easier than it is doing it virtually. And we have had some teams, depending upon what their project is and what they're doing, have had issues at their own institutions because of the pandemic, you know, labs being shut down or reduced or things like that. But, you know, all in all, you know, we have, we still feel like we've kept uh, the progress moving forward, uh, even during the past year, during the pandemic. It's good to hear that other agencies can be involved. Did you have any other agencies who were involved in some of the cohorts from 2019 or 2020? Sure, there's uh, Department of Labor is involved with the uh, future of work. Uh, they've been actively engaged. We've got uh, Department of Energy also involved. And um, we're still working on several others, Department of Defense. NIST is involved. And we've already had conversations with uh, NOAA uh, with respect to the network blue economy. That's a big area for them. So yeah, we're still, again, Still pretty new and still growing and still building a lot of partnerships ourselves across the government agencies. Doug, one thing just occurs to me, I mean, beyond your website, which we know where to find it and we'll link to it. Are there other opportunities to learn about what's coming from the Convergence Accelerator? Any success stories, any, any success stories that maybe are quote unquote failures? Uh, failures are not a bad thing in the R&D world, we know. No, they're, they're not a bad thing. Uh, as I said, we're as a startup, we're uh, still getting launched as opposed to having failures so far. But I will encourage the, the listeners to participate in our Convergence Accelerator Expo. It will be uh, essentially a virtual science fair of all of the current tracks A, B, C, and D teams. Uh, and that will be held July 28th and 29th, uh, five hours each day, and an opportunity for them to 
virtually watch some of the videos the teams produced and talk to the teams about the research that they're doing. All right, very interesting. We'll link to that if there's a website to link to right now so people can also find that. Doug, this has been a fascinating conversation. I learned so much, and this is a great program, and and it's great to catch up. So let me thank my guest. Doug Mon is the office head for the National Science Foundation's Convergence Accelerator. Doug, always a pleasure to catch up. Thanks, Jason. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it, whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.